morning, let us stand together and hear from God's word from Psalm 146. It says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Well, church, even while we keep our voices quiet, let our souls ring out in praise to our King. And let us join our hands and our hearts in praising the King of Heaven. Welcome, Desert Springs Church. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Drew, I'm the music pastor here, and you're welcome. This is a gathering of believers, members, 
of this local outpost of the kingdom of God. And the way we recognize one another is through membership. And if you're a believer and you're here and you've been here for some time, but you're not a covenant member of Desert Springs Church or of another church, gospel preaching church in town, then I would ask you to consider our membership class, which we have coming up in two weeks, a Friday night, Saturday. And this is the way our church practices meaningful membership. Without membership, we, there would not be a church. So we would ask you to consider this class in pursuing overt membership with us. Part of what membership does is it lets the world know that you represent Jesus by joining with a church. And another way that we've been representing Jesus to the world lately is through our attempts to observe the COVID guidelines for churches. We see them as necessary. We see them as necessary acts of obedience to God who ordains all authority and in honoring our earthly authorities and in loving our neighbors. These restrictions have been difficult. I think as you're breathing into your mask, you would nod and agree that these are not fun. But I would commend many of you for honoring and following these restrictions, whether you agree with them or not, in submission, submission to God and submission to your elders. So I commend you for that. The most difficult one for me would be, no surprise, the restriction on congregational singing. And as we've observed it and seen it as good and necessary, because singing can certainly spread the virus, and we don't want to do that unnecessarily, we have agreed as elders this past week that it is time for us to pursue our governor with a petition to lift the restriction on congregational singing. Amen. It's like we just had a members meeting, all in favor say a hearty amen, and I take that as affirmation uh, from you all. Based on our understanding of the current threat and research around singing, we think it's a reasonable request to allow churches to sing while wearing masks and distancing. We have discussed this with infectious disease doctors within our church and scientists, and they have agreed with this conclusion. So we are going forward with partnering with our Gospel Coalition churches in New Mexico, and we will all uh, write this formal petition to our governor. And we want to do this in a loving and honoring way that shows our governor that we want to submit to God, and we want to submit to our God-ordained authorities, and we also want to sing. And we think that we can safely do all of those things. So we ask for you to pray, to pray for our governor. Pray for wisdom for your elders as we approach her and her team. Pray for, uh, pray for those in our congregation who have helped with us reaching out to the governor. And pray that God would be glorified and in the name of Jesus would be exalted in our churches and in our state. So join me now, and let's pray to that end. Father, as citizens, we acknowledge the Spirit's work in human government for the welfare of the people, for justice among the poor, and for mercy toward the prisoner and against inhuman oppression of humanity. And we pray for our earthly leaders. Give them wisdom. Give them strength to protect what is good and to punish the evildoer. We pray that you would 
give us favor as a church with our governor that she would hear our petition and she would allow us to sing. And more than that, Father, we ask that this would be an opportunity for the gospel to uh, be presented in a special way to our governor. And if she does not uh, put her faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, that she would do so through this. And in that, she would join us in singing praise to you. As our heavenly father, we are citizens of heaven. Help us to obey you above all rulers and to be overflowing with the fruits of the spirit toward one another and to fill us with the patience of Christ as we wait. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and hear Jesus' words from Matthew 10. He encourages us to trust in the Father who is good. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let us acknowledge our Father together who is good, who is wise, who is in control for his glory and our good. What though the way be lonely, dark the shadows fall, I know where'er it leadeth, my Father planned it all. The sun may shine tomorrow, the shadows break. plan for me I sing through shade and sunshine and trust whatever be more I sing I can't be your heart sing out guides my faltering footsteps
day of light and gladness in which no shade will fall tis this at last awaits me Faithful love, 
Some of you may not know me. My name is Randy Pierce, uh, along with Drew Hodge. I'm one of your newest elders. So uh, please pray with me now. Father, you have created all things for your pleasure. You own all things. You sustain all things. You are the blessed controller of every event under heaven. You orchestrate all that happens, and you do so according to your good and perfect will. And yet, Lord, today we are troubled by some of these things. We are troubled by the events that want to overwhelm us in this year. We don't understand this plague that has been with us for so long. Our hearts are restless as we wait for an answer. Lord, we don't understand the isolation that we've had to endure. We are separated from our friends and family and from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we confess that it is too easy to disagree with one another. Father, you see the social upheaval in our nation. You see the hurt and the hate. You see the violence and destruction in our streets. Our hearts are unsettled, and we don't know what to think about our own deeply held values. We don't understand. Lord, we don't understand the political turmoil, the harsh words and bitter fighting that seem to be ever-present, even as we are asked to take sides. And we confess that we are unloving in our thoughts toward others who don't see things as we do. And Lord, we have parents and single parents among us and in our community whose hearts are in turmoil because their children have suffered a break in their education. They don't know what to do. We don't understand. Lord, in all these things and many more, we, we want answers. And we confess that we are sometimes upset and impatient in waiting for them. Father, we don't understand all these things. And so 
Would you give us, your children, the peace that surpasses all understanding? We don't need answers, but we need your peace. Would you give us that peace, a peace that settles deep in our hearts and produces a joy that overflows, that each of us might say, along with the psalmist, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Father, thank you that you have set apart the godly for yourself. Lord Jesus, your name rests on us. We are called by your name. We bear your name. And so we ask in your name that your peace would come into our hearts and that we would live lives worthy of the one who died for our restless hearts. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song.
You can be seated. If you've got your Bible, please turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at DSC. And for the last two months or so, we have been studying this little epistle of the Apostle Paul called 2 Thessalonians while our preaching pastor, Pastor Ryan, has been on a writing sabbatical. And this morning, we come to the close of this letter. So we will be reading from verses 13 all the way to the end of chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So as we come to the close of this letter, I really do hope it's been as encouraging and as stimulating for you as it has been for me. I had no idea when we set out to study the book of 2 Thessalonians just how, how rich this book was in so many different areas. In chapter 1, if you remember, we covered persecution and eternal punishment. In chapter 2, we looked at prophecy and predestination. And in chapter 3, already, we have seen prayer and productivity. And this morning, as we close, we will look at the doctrine of church discipline. Unless you think I've run out of P words, this morning is all about preserving peace in the church. Or to broaden that just a little bit, in this section, Paul is commanding and encouraging the church to preserve proper order and to pray for peace among themselves in reliance on the Lord of peace. So that's our sermon in a sentence, and that's also our outline. We are to preserve proper order in verses 13 to 15, and we are to pray for peace in verses 16 to 18. So first, preserving proper order. Uh, Over the last... Several weeks I have been doing a serious home renovation project on my patio in my backyard. There was, um, when we moved in uh, last, sometime last year, a root that had grown up underneath the concrete of our patio. The root was from a cottonwood tree. It was probably about 10 inches in, what is that, diameter? It was big, big root. I went to art school. And... Uh, this root had grown such that it, was, it had not only cracked our patio, but it had lifted it up like six inches off of the ground. And so it was a major trip hazard, and it was super ugly. And so I have spent several weeks, I, I jacked up my concrete with a car jack, and then put cinder blocks underneath it, and have been hacking away at this root. And I finally got the whole thing out, and then leveled out the dirt underneath it, and, and laid the concrete back down. And there's still a giant crack in it, but it is flat now. 
If you remember what we looked at last week in verses six to 12, there was a group of Christians in this Thessalonian church who were walking in what the Apostle Paul calls idleness. That could also be translated disorderliness. They were not living lives that was rightly ordered to God's design for humanity. They had decided instead to quit working. And as we saw last week, this was a really big problem. This was like that root underneath my patio that was causing a lot of damage. It was causing damage to the church because it was taking resources away from the church, burdening the church. It was also robbing those Christians themselves of their own humanity, of being and living in the way that God had designed them. And as they were living that way and burdening their brothers and sisters, it just looked really bad. It was dishonorable. People outside of the church would look in and think that the church was dishonorable. And in that, worst of all, God himself was being robbed of his glory. So Paul and this church are, are called to do what I was trying to do. They were having to do a major work to repair the damage that was happening in this church. If you remember at the end of our section last week in verse 12, Paul commands those idle Christians in verse 12, he says, we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do your work quietly and earn your own living or eat your own bread. And here in our text this morning, verse 13, Paul shifts back to address the rest of the church. And what does he say? As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now this is, this is heavy. At first glance, when you read that, you might think that that sounds really harsh, but it's important to always keep verse 13 in mind. What did Paul say at the very beginning of this? Church, don't grow weary in doing what? Good. What he's commanding them to do here, it's not easy. It's not entered into lightly. It only happens with hearts that are filled with grief. But what Paul is commanding the church to do is good. It's a good work. And what is that command? Well, Paul is clearly telling this church to engage in a level of what we would call church discipline. Do this. Keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians and turn to the left to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew will be in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew is a gospel. It's all about the teaching of our Lord Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus himself is going to give us the most extensive and the most important teaching on this topic of what we call church discipline. And I just want to read all of these verses to you, 15 to 20, because this is what Jesus himself says to the church. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus writes, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Have you heard those last verses before? Those are well-known verses. I don't often hear them quoted in their context. When two or three are gathered together, when the church is gathered together, there is Jesus among them to authoritatively rebuke sin. That's what those verses mean. This is what Jesus is commanding the church to do. And the only way that we can understand what Paul is saying here at the close of 2 Thessalonians 3 is to understand Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. Paul isn't doing anything more than encouraging this church, teaching this church to obey Jesus' commands about how we regard and rebuke sin in the church. So those verses in Matthew chapter 18, you, you could hear in that, couldn't you, that Jesus envisioned something of a process, of a progression. It starts at a very private, informal level. If your brother sins against you or just sins, you understand that they're sinning, then you go to them alone and you address their fault. You tell them what their fault is. But, but what does Jesus say? That if they listen to you, then you have gained back your brother. It's only if they don't listen to you that you start to expand that circle of people that are involved in this process of calling out and correcting sin. You never go bigger than as many people as it takes, as many people as are necessary to appropriately address this sin. And you never move in that process faster than it takes than is necessary to try and correct this sin. And it's always with that same heart of gaining back your brother. You hear the echo of that, don't you, in what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3, that we are not regarding someone as an enemy, but we are warning them how? As a brother. Even in Matthew chapter 18, it's really important to remember what came before and what came after this section about rebuking our brothers and sisters for their sin. Right before this section is the parable of the lost sheep. Where Jesus says he goes out of his way, he leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep that has gone astray. And then after these verses, there's the parable of the unforgiving servant, where Jesus teaches us that we are to forgive someone that genuinely repents, forgive them completely. So that is, the, 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 the meat in that sandwich is this spirit of going after someone that has gone astray and a spirit of trying to save them, of trying to lovingly help them, and in a spirit of forgiveness and in reconciliation. That is what Jesus is calling us to do as we try to win back our brother, starting at this private, informal level. I think the Thessalonian church, they've already done this. They have already obeyed Jesus in this command to privately rebuke someone in their sin. I think that because if you remember in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the first letter that Paul wrote to this church in chapter 5, Paul writes, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle. And he goes on, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So Paul has already instructed this church, hey, there are some idle brothers and sisters in your church. Go and admonish them, correct them. This is, this is probably due to some kind of misunderstanding 
and you need to just help them. But what does he say? Do that patiently. Do it in a spirit of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Try and correct them. So as I said, I think it's safe to assume that this church is already engaged in those earlier levels of church discipline from Matthew 18. And I also think it's safe to assume that those idle Christians didn't repent. Because in the second letter, Paul has to talk about it again. And he talks about it more forcefully. He corrects them. They didn't listen. And so now he does what Jesus says to do. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, we are to tell it to the church. So in in this level, this, this step in the process of church discipline, after someone has been patiently warned and there has been unforgiveness or unrepentance, the church then is to gather together with Jesus present and they are to publicly rebuke this brother or sister's sin. Paul writes in our letter that you are to take notes of that person and then have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Not as an enemy, but warning them as a brother. In verse six, he wrote, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So to take note means to mark down their name or to make their name known. If someone has not known what is going on, it is now made known publicly, both the name of the person and the nature of their sin. And then keeping away from them having nothing to do with them. There's some debate about what that means, about exactly what is Paul encouraging them to do. I think in its immediate context, this is related to what he said last time, that they're not supposed to feed these guys. Remember, they have been mooching off of other people's bread. They're not working anymore, but they're eating. And so I think in some of this, kind of in with what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, that they're supposed to break table fellowship. You're not supposed to have these people at your table any longer. But I think just more broadly, what Paul is saying when he's saying don't have anything to do with them, what he means is you, church, need to draw a really clear line between what is right, acceptable behavior and what is sin and have nothing to do with sin and make it very clear and very public that sin is sin and sin does what sin always does, which is break fellowship. Sin breaks fellowship with God. And it breaks fellowship with your brothers and sisters. If we were going to get to this phase in our own church, because our own church obeys Jesus in this. Our own church practices church discipline. If we were going to get to this phase in our church, this is what it would look like. Say we had a brother or sister who had been walking in serious, unrepentant sin that was obvious and it had been addressed privately, it had been addressed by one or two others. In our church, we probably would have gotten an elder involved at this point, some of our church leadership. They would have been patiently, lovingly appealing to this brother or sister. And if they still refused to listen, then what we would do is we would call a members meeting. And one of our elders would come up in front of all of you, and they would make their sin known. They would tell you the name of the member and they would tell you what their sin was. They would tell you what steps had been taken up to this point. They would tell you why this is clearly unacceptable behavior. 
they would enlist any of those who have not already been in that process of trying to correct and appeal to this brother or sister to repent. They would enlist you to also relate to them on those terms, begging for their repentance. And most of all, we would ask you to pray. We would ask you to pray for that brother and sister that God would change their hearts, that God would convict them of their sin, and that there would be peace in our church. That's what Paul does. In verses 16 to 18, Paul says that we are to pray for peace. Look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Verse 16, technically it marks the close of this letter. What's uh, technically referred to as the benediction. Okay, so this is Paul ending the letter. It was customary to end with a prayer for peace or just wishing well. And as you would expect at the close of a letter, you see that Paul himself signs it in verse 17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And you say, what is that about? This is actually kind of unusual. Ordinarily, letters, when they were written in the first century, they were written by a scribe. Someone would dictate to a person that actually knew how to write well, because that was a very small percentage of the population. Even Paul uses scribes to write his letters, the letters in the New Testament. But there are a few times, actually, uh, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, and then this letter, where, where Paul takes the pen from the scribe, and he writes his own name, or he writes a little message calling out the uniqueness of his handwriting. It's really weird. Why would he do that? Well, what does he say here? So that this church would know that this letter was genuinely from Paul. It would seem that the theological error that had seeped into this church came through some false teachers. And I think there's a good case to be made that those false teachers were actually forging letters from Paul to this church, telling them things like Jesus had already come back when that wasn't true. And so this, 1 Thessalonians, is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. This starts a new custom for Paul where he signs the letter in his own hand as a sign of genuineness so that they would be able to tell, no, this is what Paul really said. Well, why would that be so important? Paul understands that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul understands that he is writing with an authority that is the very authority of God. And so the church needs to know what words come with that authority and what words don't because to disobey Paul's words would be to disobey God. And the same is true for us. Not not just Paul's words, but Peter's words and John's words and all of the words of the Bible that were written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word to us. And to disobey this is to disobey God. That's why in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, Paul says, our remedy for falling into error is to stand firm and hold fast to this. And this is also the standard by which we govern proper order in the church. In Matthew 18, when Jesus was talking about going to our brothers and pointing out their faults, he says, if they have sinned. Well, how do we know what sin is? This tells us. 
to disobey this is sin. We don't come to our brothers and sisters and we say, hey, you know what you did the other day? I didn't like that. That hurt my feelings. We don't say, you know, you really offended my preferences there. Or I disagree with you on a matter of conscience and you need to repent. We don't say that. Whenever we engage in this process that Jesus has called us to, we come with our Bible open. And we humbly place this this before our brothers and sisters and we say, look, right here, God's word says that what you are doing is sinful. And I wanna help you obey this. But this is the standard that I'm holding you to. This is the standard that we are all held to. We don't discipline people by our own standards and we don't shame people by our own standards. I wonder how you felt when you heard that Paul said that, that this person should be publicly rebuked, that they would be ashamed. Did that make anyone uncomfortable? Maybe for you, you hear that and you think about how you grew up in a church where shame played an outsized role. Or maybe that's just your understanding. Maybe you're not a Christian and this is just what you've always thought about Christians and here's the proof. They are a judgmental, shaming people. That's not what Paul's talking about. When people have grown up with bad experiences of Christians or churches shaming them, one of two things is happening. One, what is being addressed is legitimately sin. People in that church are pointing out what is something that is clearly in disobedience with God's word, but they've forgotten to do that in a spirit of love and to do that in a spirit of reconciliation. Instead, they're pointing out legitimate sin harshly and self-righteously. And so they're adding shame to what is this legitimate sin. That could be happening or the other, and I'm afraid this is more common, is the people were just judging them by their own standards. Shaming them because they didn't dress the right way or they didn't raise their kids the right way or they didn't spend the time the, the right way. None of that coming from God's word. Just their own opinions, their own thoughts. Either way, if you've ever felt that, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And that, that would rightly hurt because that's not what we're supposed to do. That's not Christianity. That's not what Paul is talking about. But Paul is talking about shame. He's talking about the fact that disobeying God is shameful. It's contrary to the very creation order. Sin is is wrong, and it makes us feel wrong. It makes us feel ashamed. Isn't that interesting that we all have the experience of shame, even if nobody knows about it? The fact that we try to hide certain things that we've done, that means that we know that it's shameful. And we don't want anyone to know. We don't want to be exposed. We want to cover it up, just like Adam and Eve did when they committed the very first sin. But God knows. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And so this process of church discipline is meant to expose what God already knows. It's meant to bring into the light what cannot stay hidden. 
And it's not done in a way that makes the rest of us feel superior, like we can point and laugh at this person and and think about how bad they are so that we know how good we are. That's not it at all. The whole reason that we bring into the light what is trying to stay hidden in the dark is so that we can bring about peace. That's what all of this is driving to. Everything that Paul is talking about just goes right there, verse 16, to that prayer. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Church discipline is about pursuing and preserving peace. Because church discipline is really just a small picture of the love of God that he's shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus confronted us in our sin, didn't he? If you believe in in Jesus, Jesus didn't love you the way that the world says we should love one another, which is to be tolerant, which is to just let sin go unchecked because we don't want to offend anybody by pointing out if they've done something wrong. Jesus didn't do that to us. Thank God. Jesus came near to us and he brought true peace. Jesus came near through an evangelist, through a teacher, through his word. And he held this up to your face like a mirror. And he sent his Holy Spirit to help you understand as you read this that you have sinned against God and that you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed because because God is perfect and holy. And what you have done is profane what you have done has made you an enemy of God and rightly deserving of God's wrath because you've rebelled against him you've disobeyed his clear commandments Jesus did that and it didn't feel good it didn't feel good did it it doesn't feel good for someone to point out your sin but that's the first step of the gospel (laughs) if we didn't know that we were Sinners, if we didn't know that the wrath of God was coming, we wouldn't know that we need a Savior. And then we wouldn't know that Jesus is our Savior. That was the love of God to us to convict us of our sin. And I wonder if there's anyone in here that's not a Christian and you feel that weight. You feel that. I'm ashamed of what I've done. I don't know how God could ever love me. I don't know how any other person could ever love me because of the things that I have done because it's so shameful. Friend, if if you feel that way, I've got really good news for you. Jesus wants you to admit that, confess that, and then he wants you to hand your shame over to him because that's what Jesus did. That's the gospel. That's the good news, is that Jesus, who was perfect, who had never done anything shameful, who deserves all honor and glory and power, said, give me your shame. Let me take your sin. He lived a perfect life, and then he was hung on a cross, totally exposed. They stripped off all of his clothes. He was mocked and reviled as he hung there for your shame. Other people pointed and laughed at him, thought he was a horrible person. The book of Colossians says that when he did that, he took our record of debt, all of the things that had been made note of, all of our sin, 
and he nailed it to the cross. Colossians also says that when he did that, he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the Lord of peace, amen? We were God's enemy and Jesus reconciled us by by dying the death that we deserve to die so that we could have peace, that there is no longer enmity but reconciliation. That's the gospel. We have been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ and so now we work the same way to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. That's the good work that Paul is calling the church to and to not grow weary of even when it hurts. And it does, it does hurt, right? It is, it is hard, but you know what? As hard as it can be, I am so grateful to be at Desert Springs Church where we actually practice this, where we obey Jesus and we carry out the process of church discipline. I'm so thankful for that because so many churches have decided that that's not a good work. So many churches in America have done exactly what Paul told us not to do. They have grown weary or they have grown slack in this good work of church discipline. I wonder how many of you, before you came to DSC, you had even heard of this stuff. You'd ever seen it practiced. When a church lets that happen, they fundamentally undermine the gospel. Do you see that? Church discipline is a picture of the gospel And when a church stops doing that, when a church thinks, you know, that just doesn't sound good. That doesn't doesn't feel right. Let's not do that. Frankly, that's arrogant. Incredibly arrogant. Because you're blatantly saying, I don't think Jesus knows what he's talking about in Matthew 18. I think I actually know better how to care for Christ's sheep than the chief shepherd does. I think I'm actually more loving than God himself. There's no estimating the damage that has been caused by churches growing lax in church discipline. When you ask, okay, if it hurts so bad, how can it be good? How can something so painful be a good work? But we have a category for this, right? Surgery does not feel good. But say you've got a tumor. It's eating away at your body. You will undergo that painful process so that you can have life. So it is with church discipline. It may hurt, but it's a good. How is it good? Let's just, take, let's just take the case of the Thessalonian church. I can think of three groups that benefit from this practice that Paul is commanding them in, in Thessalon- 2 Thessalonians chapter three. I can think of three groups that benefit from church discipline. First, the church itself benefits. If you remember last week, again, this church is being burdened. And so by intervening here, preserving right order, the, the church is being protected from being taken advantage of. 
its resources are being protected for the sake of the gospel. But much more importantly, what Paul is asking the church to do here, to keep away, to make a clear distinction between right behavior and wrong behavior, what that is doing is it's keeping the rest of the church from adopting that same bad behavior. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, bad company corrupts good morals. And in multiple places, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay, sin when it goes unchecked, is like a bacteria that spreads through the whole organization. And so you have to cut it off. You have to draw that line and keep people from associating with sin. This is even where that, that process of shaming, public shaming, it, it comes in. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul wrote, As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In fear of what? In fear of sinning that way. And in fear of being rebuked publicly that same way. When you have ever sit in a, when, if you've ever sat in a members meeting and you see someone in this process, that makes you double down on your fidelity. That makes you more diligent in fighting sin because you don't want that to happen to you. And you realize that it can happen to any of us. And so this process is good for the whole church. It makes the church holy. It's not just good for the church. It's good for those outside of the church. Remember I said last week that one of Paul's main, main concerns with this disorderliness in this church was that it made the church look bad. At the end of his first letter, he wrote that Christians are to work quietly and walk properly before outsiders, being dependent on no one. He knows that the way that they're acting in this dishonorable way, people outside of the church are looking in and saying, well, we would never act like that. So that community, that's not an honorable community. So their Lord must not be an honorable Lord and their message must not be an honorable message. And so the word can't speed ahead and be honored like Paul prayed for at the beginning of chapter three. I won't name names, but, but just think about when a prominent Christian leader sins grievously. Even in recent weeks, this has happened. They do something that God's word clearly says is wrong, but more importantly, they do something that the world knows is wrong. And it becomes public. It's all in the headlines. Don't you just get that feeling when that happens that the whole world is watching to see how we'll respond to that? We know that's wrong. Are they gonna say that's wrong? Or because he's one of theirs and he's influential and powerful, are they gonna, are they gonna try and protect him? Are they going to try and downplay what he did and just act like nothing happened? How often, maybe yourself, has the charge been made that Christians are hypocrites? Church discipline defends us against the charge of hypocrisy. And it helps us remain honorable and above reproach in the eyes of the world. So it's a benefit for the church, it's a benefit for those outside of the church. And lastly, it's, it's a benefit for the sinner themselves. 
As we saw last week, by failing to walk properly, these idle Christians were, were living a less than human life. By not working, they weren't being what God made them to be, which is workers. And so they were experiencing the negative side effects of that. They were experiencing the lack of joy that comes from fulfilling work. They were even experiencing the lack of bread that comes from fulfilling work. So walking in sin is just bad for you. And for somebody to correct you in that is to lead you in paths of righteousness, leads, lead you in, to blessing. But way more importantly, by walking in unrepentant, serious sin, these idle Christians are calling their very salvation into question because that's not what Christians do. And if the church didn't try to correct them, if the church didn't do anything, they saw that that was happening, but they didn't say anything, well, then they would basically be saying that they were content to let a sheep wander away from the fold and fall off a cliff. That's not loving. Several years ago, I was on leadership in another church, and we had to go through this process. We had to remove a man from our membership because he had been walking in serious, blatant, unrepentant sin. And we did it, as far as I can tell, the way we were supposed to. We were, we were patient with him. We were loving with him. We kept it informal and private, making these appeals, opening up God's word and begging him to see that what he was doing was, there's no question wrong, and to please repent. And he wouldn't listen. So we did what we were supposed to do. We, we moved it to this public step. We took it to the church. We told the church what was going on. We told the church what we had been doing. And we prayed. And we tried. And he wouldn't listen. So finally we, we did what Jesus said to do. We removed him from membership. We sent him a letter and we said, hey, we love you, but your sin and your unrepentance have led us to the point where where we just can't in a clear conscience affirm that you're a Christian. We can't, we can't for, for the sake of our witness to the world and for the sake of the good of our church and for your own sake keep telling you that we think that you're saved. Because to us it seems like you love your sin a lot more than you love Jesus. And that's not what a Christian does. We said we, we want you back. We pray that you would repent. If you would repent, we would receive you back in. But he didn't. So we removed him from membership and, and then he just started going to a church down the street. That happens in Texas. He just went to a church down the street. And, and so we did what, it, what is right to do. As pastors, we wrote a letter to the pastor of that church. And we said, sir, this man was just removed from our church for a serious offense here's the steps that we took he was unrepentant we're very concerned for the state of his soul and we want you to know so that you can help us as the universal church to tell this man what we think is true that he's not really a believer and that pastor responded to us and he said well hey thanks for writing but we're going to choose rather to show him love and grace That's not love. That's cheap grace. 
That's grace that feels really good right now in this life, but it is not saving grace. Jonathan Lehman once wrote a book called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. I think that title says it all. But in that book, he wrote that maybe the reason that we don't take church discipline very seriously is because we don't take the doctrine of hell very seriously. Remember what we looked at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? The people that walk in unrepentant sin refuse to love the truth. One day, Jesus will come back and they will stand totally exposed. God will judge them and they will suffer eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And in that day, there won't be a chance to repent. But there's a chance this day. And the church serves this vital role of appealing to sinners to repent while there's time. To try and be very clear that if you don't repent in this day, on that day, you'll wish you had. And that day you will be completely exposed. And if we, in the name of love, rather tell them that we think that they're okay when they're not, that's really just saying we're okay with them being damned later. And that's awful. In the book of Jeremiah chapter six, the prophet rebukes the priests of Judah and he says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We practice church discipline so that we're not guilty of that same charge. If someone is not at peace with God because of their sin, then the church should not tell them that they are. Peace only comes through Jesus and through faith in Jesus who reconciled us back to God. And so one of the most important ways that we work for peace, bring about peace at all times and in every way is to practice church discipline. And I say we, we practice church discipline. By that I mean you. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. Not the church as an institution, to every member of the church. That is your responsibility. That is your authority to bind and to loose. So this is a command to you. And you say, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, First, what does this say? Pray. Pray for peace. I love that he says, pray for peace at all times and in every way. Don't just pray for peace in our church when bad stuff's happening. Pray for peace in our church before the bad stuff happens. Pray that God would keep us unified and work for peace. But what else can you do? Come to members meetings. I'm serious. That is where these keys are turned. That is where we exercise this process. And if you are a member of our church, I think you need to be there so that you can obey Paul. 
If you're not a member of our church, but you've been here a long time, you're not a member of any church, as Drew said, we've got a membership class that we will prepare you to join this church, and then we will vote on you and receive you in as a member, but we have a responsibility to one another, and it's exercised in those members' meetings. But for our purposes today, I think the most important thing that you can do to be working for peace, that you can, be do, that you can do to be exercising church discipline is to remember that discipline's really just another word for discipleship. Yes, as Jesus envisions it, there's, there's this phase out here that's, that's public, that's serious. But we need to spend a lot more time in those earlier stages that are informal and private. It sounds counterintuitive, but the way that we guard and preserve the peace of our church is to spend a lot more time pointing out one another's faults and a spirit of love and forgiveness. When I was pulling out that root that was underneath my patio, all I kept on thinking was, why hasn't someone done this sooner? You had to know that this was happening. I mean, you could see the root popping up out of the ground. Why didn't somebody cut that root off when they noticed the crack? Why did they let that minor problem just keep on growing until it was so big that it ruined my backyard. It's one of the best ways that we can preserve peace is just to be in one another's lives, to be studying God's word together and to just lovingly point out, hey man, I think you were at fault there. To study God's word yourself and to be willing to receive someone's rebuke, the loving rebuke of a brother. To not get defensive, but to be corrected. To really believe that God has made us a family that's accountable to one another. And to walk in that accountability. That's how we preserve peace. Peace that's good for the saint when they sin, peace that's good for the church peace that testifies to the outside world about the Lord of peace in whose name is salvation and on whose grace we rely for everything, including church discipline. So in that spirit, I conclude with Paul's conclusion, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we are in need of your grace to help us do things that are hard but are good. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that's not at peace with you, that you would reconcile them to yourself through the blood of your cross, that you would help them to believe in Jesus, to confess their sins and to be saved. God, if there's anyone who's a member in our church that's wandering off into sin, even secret sin, God, would you be gracious to them and expose it? Even if it's just to two or three witnesses, that it would be corrected and that you would lead them in repentance and that they would turn from their sin and be saved. God, would you help our church be committed to one another and to preserving peace in our body because you're the Lord of peace and we want to glorify you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
how to stand and respond and consider our unity in Christ. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ alone. She is his new creation by water and the Soon the night of 
that she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one oh happy ones and holy lord give us grace that we like them the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee jesus says peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. If you want to have peace with God, if you want to have that burden of guilt and shame removed, that can happen right now. Just believe in Jesus. Confess your sins, repent, and worship him alone as your Lord and as your Savior. If you have questions about what that means or if you want somebody to lead you in that process, we would love to do that. We'll have some people out in the courtyard, just out there, out those doors. You can talk to them. You can email us, info at dscabq.com. We'd love to set up a meeting with you and, and answer some of your questions. Church, I ask that you would be in prayer, that we would be at peace with our governing authorities but that God would honor this petition that we are making to our governor, be praying about that. I'd also just remind you that we do have a podcast that covers supplemental material to what we've been talking about. We just recorded a podcast on church membership, which is very much connected to what we've talked about today. But as you go, we turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, which is a fascinating book because it's about a brother that's been removed for sin and then received back in. And at the end of that letter, Paul writes this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. And live in peace. And the God of love and of peace will be with you. Amen.